Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we are joined by Anne Chinnery, Simon Fraser University. Welcome to Pipeline, Anne. We're very pleased to have you here. Thank you very much. Now, as you're familiar with the program, you'll know that I'm rather curious about how folks get uh, uh, involved doing philosophical work in education. Uh, You work on a number of really fascinating topics. How did you get started doing this work? Thanks. Um, To be honest, I came into this work through the back door. I had a teaching certificate. I got it uh, in 1981. At that point, jobs were pretty thin on the ground in Alberta. I I got my degree at the University of Alberta in in Canada. So I ended up working in a rare books library for 14 years. And during that time, I was also involved in a dialogue group based on the work of David Bohm, quantum (laughs) physicist. And I found in that dialogue group, I was more drawn to or intrigued by questions rather than answers. Mm. And uh, at working in the library, tuition was free, so I thought, oh, I'd love to go back to school. You know, I've got an education degree. What the heck sure. am I going to do? So philosophy of education, I went into, into that and uh, did my degree with Eamon Callan, mm. who I'm holding the highest regard. Of course. And, um, but at in that work, like in the dialogue group, I was introduced to uh, Alfonso Lingus's The Community of Those Who Have Nothing in Common. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I was very intrigued by this text. I'd never read phenomenology before and so on. I thought, I need to look up more about this guy. Sure. Turned out at that point, so this is 1994, he was known more for his translation of some of Levinas's essays mm-hmm. than his own phenomenology mm-hmm. um, at that point. So I thought, oh, I'm going to look up this Levinas guy. And was intrigued but didn't have a clue Hmm. what I was reading. But there was something there that just kept pulling me back to his text, pulling me back to the text, and just sitting with it, struggling with it. And I swear it it was about five years before I actually understood a paragraph of primary source Levinas. Interesting. Wow. (laughs) Um, And so... That's how I sort of got into the field of philosophy of education. But when I finished my master's degree, which was, my thesis was uh, basically an argument for compassion as a moral imperative, I had barely scratched the surface of my sort of intrigue or interest in Levinas's work. I thought, mm-hmm. okay, got to go on and do the next step. And so that's, that's what my doctoral degree focused on. And so, uh, uh, what was it to your mind? I mean, maybe at the time, or now looking back uh, with the um, the benefits of, of hindsight, what was it about Levinas that was so attractive that you were uh, able to sort of um, uh, persevere for uh, years and years without uh, really making headway in the primary source? What, what was what was so attractive there? Well, what I think, in again, this is in hindsight, is if I were to characterize the sort of trajectory of my research mm. over the years. Years, it it all uh, sort of falls under 
the broad question, what is it that prompts us to do something mm. rather than nothing when mm. we're faced with the suffering of another person? Okay. And so I've, I've done sort of frontline social activism and feminism and anti-poverty work and so on. And I think that there was something in Levinas's work that was pulling me to a new vocabulary and a new understanding of that question, what prompts us to mm. do something? Mm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, then it sounds as though there is some acknowledgement of suffering that then motivates us or leads us to act in some way. I wonder, is that related at all to the earlier invocation of the term compassion that you gave us? Uh, are, are those two things linked to your mind? Yeah, I would say it is part yeah. of a, a thread. And for me, I think the difference in why I would locate my work in questions of moral agency and moral responsibility, it's yeah. not just when we see suffering thinking, oh, something has to be done about this. Right. It's what is it that makes me feel I must do something about this? I see. Does I that see. difference make sense? Yeah, so it's, okay. it's, 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 it's personal, it's immediate. It's yeah, not, I'm, I'm uh, called to do something. Yeah, yeah. Not just, oh, this is a terrible thing and something needs to be done. Hmm. And, and so what, in which ways does that insight then lead us into the work that you've done since then? I mean, so uh, you, you sat with Levinas for, uh, for years, years and uh, made sense of the work. And uh, what, what, what has that led to then, that, that, um, uh, that sense of what must I do, right? Or, or how ought I respond or should I respond? What, what does that lead to? For me, it is a way of radically reconceiving what it means to be a moral subject. I see, I see. And then in my work with education, it's okay. As, let's say, with working with classroom teachers, I do a fair bit of work with pre-service teachers. Hmm. And uh, in some of the school districts that our university serves, there are kids coming from situations of quite extreme suffering, hmm. um, refugee situations, extreme poverty, extreme violence, um, of people from indigenous communities that have sort of suffered the legacy of residential schooling and so sure. on, so intergenerational violence. I think what I'm trying to do as well is rethink what does it mean to be a teacher hmm. who meets and responds to every kid who comes to the door. Oh, interesting. And so one of the challenges of that, of course, from a Levinasian framework, is that most of his work is about the ethical relation of two, self and other. Sure. Not the ethical relation of self and 30 others. Sure. Right, who are coming with all these urgent yeah, it's needs. It's a different dynamic. And so his, his conception of the third mm -hmm. and his conception of where justice comes in instead of ethics, I think offers us some help in education, but it may be, and I'll see in my own work moving forward, that I need to turn to someone else mm -hmm. for those questions. Yeah, but those are the questions, uh, would it be fair to say that those are the sorts of questions that have sort of... Uh, uh, They've animated my work. Yeah, yeah, motivated the work that you're doing. Yeah. Now, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing then uh, through, those, through those questions? Um, uh, uh, how do you see uh, that work being extended? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, in a sort of tangential way, a, a recent three-year research project that I undertook was around critical historical consciousness. And mm -hmm. so I was building on the work of Roger Simon okay. uh, from Ontario, and he has since passed away. But his work uh, 
was based, he, he sort of drew inspiration from Levinas and Derrida as well as psychoanalytic theory. And what, what drove his um, conception of critical historical consciousness is um, a view of the past mm. as not something that's been and gone mm. about dead people, but something that calls to us. It calls us to a responsibility here and now. It, it oh, makes moral demands on us. Mm. And so when he's talking about history, then asking us to position ourselves differently in relation to history. Uh, yeah, basically, what are the ethical demands that the past makes on me here and now? Mm. And what does that mean for moving forward? And so mm. I've tried to wrestle a little bit with what might that mean in history education, for okay. instance. Um, so that was, a, in, but in a way, it was kind of a discrete project. Sure. But the influences were, you know, let me know, Derrida and so on. Sure, and, and to my ears, it seems that uh, uh, everything that you've described really does kind of uh, connect in very uh, uh, coherent ways. It sounds to me that, you know, these uh, 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 questions of how ought I respond and these questions of being sort of situated in history and the obligations that that uh, 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 sort of placement in a historical context might give us um, seem to be uh, questions of huge importance for uh, those of us who would educate others, right? Uh, yeah. I feel it that way, yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so stemming from those questions and working through the traditions that you do, uh, to your mind, what, uh, what what's ahead for us? I mean, uh, either for the projects that you're describing or philosophical work on education, uh, perhaps a little bit more broadly or more generally, uh, what lays ahead for us? As we've been discussing our position sort of in a historical context, what do we have to look forward to? Well, I can address both parts of your question, okay. if you will. So... In terms of my own research, uh, I'm currently in a position, uh, director of undergraduate programs in our faculty. So deeply involved with beginning teachers and still in the back of my mind, is, you know, so these questions turn over and over. And in BC, uh, in British Columbia, the Ministry of Education has fairly recently put down a mandate that says all pre-service teachers must have three credits in special education and three credits in Aboriginal education. Mm. And so what that has done is push me into some sort of different areas of uh, literature, mm. looking at most recently, actually on the plane on the way here, <laughs> sure. look at reading an article about the need to respect profoundly disabled persons. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that was the language of the article, we might say, uh, students with mm -hmm. profound disabilities, as people. So it was an argument for respecting the personhood mm -hmm. of people with profound disabilities, regardless of their capacity to ever fulfill what we might think of as the educated person, this sure. kind of thing. So, so I'm coming to that literature which might sort of fall roughly within special ed, but, okay, what does it mean to be a teacher of people with a yeah. huge range of abilities and constraints and so sure. on? And similarly around Indigenous or Aboriginal education. What does it mean to be a teacher mm. of students who come from historically marginalized backgrounds? Mm. How do we position ourselves as teachers-moral-agents or-slash-moral-agents mm. 
uh, in that encounter? What does it mean to meet those kids? Yeah. So that's pushing me into new, uh, new literature, which is really interesting. And I'm, I'm just fortunate that the colleague I'm working most closely with, that's his area. So. Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> so it's yeah. good. He's, he'll, he'll help guide me through. Um, looking at the future of philosophy of ed, I think I'm uh, a hopeless idealist okay. in the sense that a lot of our colleagues are, you know, there's a fairly widespread despair about the future of philosophy of education. There are programs are closing down. People aren't hiring philosophers of education. And I agree that that's a concern and a serious concern. But I still think that our work has deep relevance mm. for what's going on in faculties of education and in higher ed. And so my thing is, okay, we just need to keep asking the kinds of questions that philosophers ask wherever we find ourselves. Mm. If it's on hiring committees or it's on okay. teacher ed admission committees or it's on scholarship committees or it's teaching courses we wouldn't normally teach, huh. uh, how can we still keep philosophical questions, philosophical discourses alive and get our students excited about that and worry about the positions and so on in the field. I keep working on that, but I think that there are some institutional constraints which mean that we don't really have necessarily a lot of control over those things, but I still think the work can be brought in. Um, yeah. The other thing is, for me, the future of philosophy of education has a lot to do with these kinds of meetings. Mm -hmm. Philosophy of Education Society, Canadian Philosophy of Education Society, the Great British, or PESGB, and so on. And I, so I think that it's absolutely vital that those of us who are either mid-career mm -hmm. or, or more junior colleagues really do our part to make sure those societies stay alive. Mm -hmm. Even though service isn't particularly valued on CVs, I think that in a way, that's a kind of responsibility to our profession, if mm. you will. Yeah, and I, I wonder if maybe in some ways that uh, extends from your interests in thinking about the obligations that we have to another or uh, to a group of others, right? Oh, in perhaps, ways, yeah. perhaps, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Anne, thank you so much for sitting and chatting with us. Well, thank you, Winston. This has been, it has been a treat. Thank you very much. Thanks. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.